Hello everyone, welcome to Risk Roundup. While we have made formidable advances in software and the power and promise of software that learn by example is immense, the challenge has been so far about lack of parallel evolution in computer hardware to enhance machine intelligence for the complex problems we want to solve for the future of humanity. Moreover, since the traditional general purpose computing chips haven't changed much over the years and efforts are towards developing systems on a chip, there is an intense ongoing research focused on redesigning more efficient, lower energy consuming microprocessor chips that mimics the human brain circuitry. This rapidly evolving neuromorphic chips and platform is exciting many as it would allow us to design systems on the evolving neuromorphic chips. As a result, the competition is heating up. To discuss one such innovation spin maker that is making headlines in neuromorphic computing chip space further, I'm honored to welcome Professor Stephen Ferber to this roundup. Professor Ferber, is the ISIL Professor of Computer Engineering at School of Computer Science at the University of Manchester, uh, United Kingdom. Uh, welcome, Professor Ferber. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Hello, pleased to be here. Wonderful, Professor. So it seems that today's computing architecture is not effective for building systems on a chip. Now, as we know, traditional computing rests on the basic idea that there are two computing elements, a CPU and a memory. So how is neuromorphic computing throwing that out and starting from a completely different point on the computing architectural spectrum? And what does it mean for computational intelligence? The basis of, of traditional computing is, is being uh, using uh, engines or computers, processors uh, that do very simple things very fast indeed. And, and this creates an illusion of, of complex behavior. Um, the brain, on the other hand, uh, does very complex things rather slowly. And, and, and so uh, the inspiration behind the work we're doing is to see if we can build machines that work in a manner that's, that's more similar to the brain. I mean, we can't make a machine that works exactly like the brain because we still do not have anything close to a full understanding of how the brain works. But we do know a lot of the, the detail of the brain and we can use that um, to inspire uh, new architectures. So the, when you talk about the brain, is that what we are talking, the human brain that we are trying to mimic on a chip? Well, it, it, all, um, all brains have similarities, and in particular, mammalian brains are, are very similar apart from scale. Uh, so if you look at a mouse brain, it's very similar to a human brain, but a thousand times smaller and simpler. Uh, so you, the sort of inspiration we're taking, you could, you could take from uh, pretty much any brain, um, in the mammalian um, branch of evolution. Um, of course, uh, the ultimate interest is in the human brain itself, but uh, building a machine of the scale of the human brain is still a huge challenge because of the complexity of that system. It is a huge challenge, I agree with you, but uh, the I see the trend that everybody is going towards trying to mimic the human brain and trying to create the similar neural network on a chip so that you know we can build a artificial uh, brain, the semiconductor brain that uh, everybody is so interested in. So to build this network, feed it data, and that data will change the network much in the same way that this new information changes the brain. So the, 
what it seems like is that the chip can learn and infer on its own without the any influence or any sort of external update from the cloud or the source and it does all while using the fewer resources than a general computing chip that's probably that looks like the premise of where the neuromorphic computing is taking us but my bigger question is that why are we trying to create a similar pattern like a human brain because that brings us so many complex computing challenges, not only computing challenges, but in my assessment, I see that the neural networks that we are trying to create on these chips and we are trying to build autonomous systems based on that, that, that is the foundation of where we will see the strategic security risk emerging for the survival of the human civilization itself. But that is a topic of discussion on for some other risk roundup. But what I would like to ask you is that we understandably to execute these neuromorphic algorithms efficiently at the large scale requires new hardware and computing infrastructure capability. So it seems that Many new prototypes of neuromorphic chip are coming to market, including yours that you have uh, designed and developed, the SpinNecker. So what is the current state of innovation in neuromorphic processes and how do you see the neuromorphic chips evolving in the coming years? Well, neuromorphic hardware has uh, quite a long history already and can be traced back to the early work by Carl Vermeer at, uh, um, at Caltech in the 1980s. And in, in the early days, uh, there was an attempt to uh, understand, uh, if you like, the physics of, of the biological brain cell of the neuron and, and model that physics um, in electronic circuits, effectively building analog circuits that had dynamics very similar to brain cells. And uh, there is still uh, neuromorphic research that proceeds along those lines um, are uh, colleagues within the EU Human Brain Project at Heidelberg are building analog circuits that have dynamics that very like neurons and they call that uh, physical model neuromorphic computing. Uh, our Spinnaker machine is digital. Uh, instead of modeling the equations in circuits, we implement them in software. Um, this produces a, a, a fairly similar result. Um, we can then use conventional processes in, in very large numbers. Um, if you look at the current state of the art, then people are taking a range of approaches from uh, Carver Mead's original sub-threshold analog circuits, which uh, use extremely small currents to compute very like biological cells, through digital hardware, um, epitomized by the recently launched Intel Low-EV chip, um, which is a, a fully digital system. And of course, IBM 10 years ago launched the True North, which is uh, in a similar space um, where the circuits that model the neurons are implemented in hardware uh, all the way across to uh, chips such as Spinnaker uh, where the algorithms are implemented in software. And what you see across this spectrum is, is a, a range of trade-offs in terms of energy efficiency, flexibility and performance and so on. Yes, yeah, so so as 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 you just described, there are you know many developments happening, Intel and then IBM and then uh, Spinnaker and many others. You know that uh, some of them are analog chips, some of them are uh, digital, and uh, there is some are some are you know emerging as hybrid. So as these neuromorphic chips will be designed to process sensory data such as images or sounds and to respond to changes in that data in real time in ways 
that they are not specifically programmed or trained for. How do you see that changing the machine intelligence or the deep intelligence uh, going forward? Well, of course, alongside uh, the last 10 years of developments in neuromorphic technology, there's been this explosion in uh, machine learning, um, AI techniques based on uh, earlier forms of neural network, based on the multi-layer perceptrons from the 1980s and developments of that have, have, have become very successful in machine learning applications. The neuromorphic approach is closer to biology uh, but much less well-developed when it comes to finding um, applications. Uh, our motivation uh, for Spinnaker was really to try and build a machine that would accelerate our understanding of the brain rather than build a machine that would deliver applications to the customer. Um, so there's, again, there's a spectrum of approaches. And, and uh, I sense that, that these two approaches have developed in parallel over the last decade um, but there's now a kind of convergence that uh, industrial machine learning has, has got so far, but now needs some new ideas. Uh, it also needs some new techniques for um, significantly improving energy efficiency, particularly in the training phase. And neuromorphic technology may offer um, some new approaches that will deliver those benefits. That's still to be proven. Um, there's a lot of expectation and hope that we can demonstrate those kind of improvements but uh, um, the the the, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating as they say and we, we have yet to uh, deliver that proof yes no i'm glad to hear about the point that you mentioned that you, the focus is more on understanding the human brain that is really i'm really glad to hear about that because if we are trying to apply the same phenomenon, the same foundation principle of the neuromorphic computing to uh, other applications, to other autonomous systems, for example, uh, lethal you know, autonomous systems, and in uh, uh, where the drones are, you know, based on that, uh, uh, developed on that, or, you know, missiles or any other weapons are uh, being developed using this kind of technology, then, you know, we are creating much bigger problems. But I'm glad to hear that your focus mainly is right now to, for the Spinnaker focus is to, you know, understand human brain. That is, that will give us a lot of, you know, insight into many problems that we want to say, solve for not only the human biology, mental health, but also for the you know future of humanity. But going back to this discussion, even if today's neuromorphic chips are nowhere near as capable as the human brain, do you think that they would be much faster or would they be much faster than current computers at processing sensory data and learning from it? The, it's still very difficult to to build computer systems that learn online. So all the progress I described in machine learning um, is based on effectively two phases. There's a very compute intensive training phase, and then there's a, a, a rather lower cost inference phase. But when the network is, is in service in inference, it's not learning. Uh, it's implementing what it learned in the training phase. Um, and and uh, the, the there's a hope that by learning more from the brain, we can build systems that continue to learn when they're in service. This seems particularly important, uh, for example, for autonomous cars, um, that they can learn from their mistakes and improve over time. And of course, if they're equivalent systems, then they can each learn from each other's mistakes. 
uh, which which humans are not very good at. We humans we tend each each to have to make our own mistakes before we learn properly. Um, with machines, it's it's rather easier to transfer learning between them if they're using very similar hardware platforms. Yes, but isn't it ironic that we we humans we don't learn from each other's mistakes? We have to go through that ourselves to learn that. Uh, but we are still developing the artificial intelligence or, you know, this neuromorphic, uh, uh, we are trying to develop the brain and we are hoping that for autonomous cars and all these, you know, new initiatives that are emerging, that they will learn from each other. And that's where the bigger, you know, uh, security risk I see emerging because we humans are, you know, not uh, designed for certain things and we are trying to design the systems that we are trying to develop based on human brain approach. And that's where a lot of security challenges are emerging. Because if you see the lot of people's goal is to develop artificial super intelligence uh, with, you know, that has conscience and that has a mind of its own. Now, if you look, if you look at the scientific research, it says that the hum the violence as well as the, you know, this empathy and all that is, uh, you know, on the same neural network. So if we define the same neural network on these, you know, computers or on these chips, then we are replicating the challenges that humans have in a much bigger way. And uh, when we, when the nation start, you know, this uh, building little weapons based on those chips, then, you know, we have no idea how these autonomous systems that we are trying to build are going to react, how they are going to uh, decide their goals, their objectives, and when they would decide what needs to be done for uh, the security of the autonomous machines or, or systems or for the security of humanity. So a lot of, you know, security challenges I see emerging from this, but talking about this pinnacle, how are the neuromorphic chips that uh, the spinnaker chips that you are developing are they energy efficient and uh, how is the energy requirement for this the, the, the spinnaker chips have been optimized for energy efficiency so um, the machine is based on a, a custom system on chip design where each chip has 18 processors and collectively those 18 processors with their memory use below one watt of, of, energy, of power. Um, and, and, but we have a, a large number of those chips, so the complete machine with a million processors um, can, in principle, consume up to 100 kilowatts. Um, it, in practice, it, it, it rarely comes even close to that. Uh, in practice, it's, the activity is distributed and, and, and stochastic, uh, variable over time. Um, so the the average power is quite low. So the machine is is um, is built for efficiency. If if you measure its efficiency in terms of um, standard computing terms of operations per watt, then it's uh, it's fairly representative of today's mobile sort of energy efficient systems. The kind of efficiencies you'd find in a smartphone. Um, it has extremely efficient communications throughout the machine because. In fact, if you look at the design of the machine, um, the compute problem is relatively straightforward. It's the communication problem that's uh, that's a challenge, and, and and that's where the major innovation is in Spinnaker is is not in how we compute the models, but in how we communicate the spikes between the models. Yes, yeah, I hear you on that. So, do you 
what temperature the Spinnaker chips uh, require for it to operate? Because it seems that uh, there are for efficient functioning or for the atomic structures of the conducting materials, it changes at specific te temperatures, and that is perhaps a key requirement for efficient signal transmission transmission in the neuromorphic chip. So. Uh, how does the spinnaker chips, you know, uh, work around that? The spinnaker chips, um, they're built on a conventional CMOS technology, the same technology used to build chips in phones and so on. Uh, and it's a, it's a technology which is pretty flexible in terms of temperature. Um, it's not, it, the design tools allow you to specify the operating temperature range and make sure that the design is suitably margined uh, for all its operating conditions. Because Spinnik is a low power chip, we don't have to worry about it running too hot. And in fact, we package it with a, an industry standard uh, DRAM chip. And, and that DRAM chip is much more temperature sensitive than the Spinnaker chip. So it's really the memory chip that determines uh, the maximum temperature, which is around 80 degrees C. Um, and, and we uh, try and control and cool the machine so that the silicon temperatures are generally well below 80, so around 50 or 60 degrees if the machine's very busy. And, and at that temperature, conventional CMOS is, is, is perfectly happy. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Now, shrinking down the power of a neural net onto a single semiconductor chip means that these learning and pattern recognition technologies we can embed into a wider range for building systems in future, like systems on chip. Now, what potential do you see the evolving uh, broadly semiconductor chips or even the spinnaker chips for developing systems on a chip? Well, you're quite right that, that these chips deliver uh, novel learning capabilities. They're, they're learning capabilities that we don't yet fully understand how to implement and how to use. Um, I mean, on Spinnaker, the learning algorithms are, again, just uh, small pieces of software. Um, so they're very flexible. They can be reconfigured and we can experiment with them. Um, but we don't yet, in the world of spiking neurons, have anything close to the learning power uh, that's used in backpropagation in conventional neural networks. I mean, backpropagation is a technique that goes back uh, to the 1980s, if not before, it's a, it's a form of gradient descent learning. And it's become phenomenally effective uh, over the last decade. And, and spiking neurons, uh, spiking neural networks are still um, playing catch up in that space. Uh, they have the potential for um, very different learning capabilities, um, but that potential is yet to be really proven in practice. Yes, yes, definitely. This is still a very early stages. Now, today's digital chips make uh, computation based on binary on-off signaling. Now, neuromorphic chips work in an analog fashion and they, like you know, you were just talking, they, they exchange a burst of electric signals at varying intensities, much like neurons in the brain. So how how is Spinnaker developed and uh, how how is the... Uh, brain analysis that is trying to do or trying to understand the human brain how is it trying to uh, solve that problem in the brain as you say uh, neurons communicate in real time predominantly by emitting spikes which are pure impulses of energy and the information they they convey 
is entirely in the timing of the spike. So it's the neuron that spikes and when it spikes. Uh, the shape of the, the spike itself carries very little or possibly no information. Because of the way it's propagated along the wires, there's a regeneration in those wires that sustains the signal. So even if it goes into the wire at a different shape, it will come out at pretty much the same shape every time. Now in Spinnaker, um, we cannot implement the number of wires that you find in the brain. Uh, wires in, in modern electronic technology are still quite expensive. Uh, what we can do is exploit the fact that electronic wires are much faster than biological wires to effectively send many different spike signals down the same set of wires. And in Spinnaker, we do this by turning every spike into a little packet, and then we convey these packets over a packet switch fabric. A packet switch fabric is something like the internet, um, where you get a little unit of information uh, that flows around and is routed at various points to its final destinations. Um, and on, on, on Spinnaker, each spike becomes a packet, and uh, the goal of the machine is to deliver all of those packets to all of their destinations in biological real time. So, uh, so we don't literally implement the spikes um, as uh, electrochemical impulses, we implement them as packets. And, and um, the abstraction, if you like, the way to think about this is that the brain is, is, is effectively an event-driven computing system. A neuron spikes, that's an event. In Spinnaker, the event is represented differently, but it conveys the same information to the same places. Uh, the information it conveys is that this neuron has just fired. Um, how you do that, uh, this level of abstraction doesn't matter in practice. Yes, yes, that is true. Now, wh wh where do you see Spinnaker going? What is the potential? Well, the, the, the major feature of the machine is its scale. Uh, because of the innovation in the communication system in the machine, um, we have scaled it up to a million processors. Uh, that's not a fundamental limit. It's a practical limit and uh, a financially determined limit. Um, we're an academic research group, so our budgets are, uh, are small and finite. Um, and and uh, what we really uh, would like to do with that is demonstrate the kind of science that can be done at scale. My feeling uh, when it came comes to sort of understanding the brain uh, from the outset of the project was that uh, the action is really at the network level. So the very fine details of the neurons um, maybe aren't so significant. What, what's, it, what's important is how millions of neurons interact and hence the emphasis on, on scale. And, and on the current Spinnaker machine with its million processors, uh, we can in, in principle, for example, run a complete mouse brain model. Um, now, complete mouse brain models are just beginning to emerge in other parts of the human brain project, um, but we're, they're not in the form where we can easily map them onto Spinnaker, but that's the kind of capability we have. Um, we've run in the past, small models of, of, of mammalian cortex, a model developed with our collaborators at, at Ulich in Germany. Um, and we are now in the process of scaling those models up. The ones we ran originally were um, just used one or two Spinnaker boards. We have 1200 boards in the machine. Um, so we can scale up by uh, several orders of magnitude and explore 
Um, what changes in neural networks when you make them really large? Yes, yes. So uh, can, can you repeat that last part? Uh, last, uh, I couldn't hear properly. I say what, what we're trying to explore is, 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 is the effect of scale in neural networks. What is it that you can see if you model a really large network compared with uh, the limited vision you get if you run the sort of small models that you can run on a conventional computer? Yes, that, I mean, uh, those are the... the questions uh, we need to analyze and those are the points we need to discuss because as we as we see currently i mean the one when we look at the vision that a uh, lot of uh, visionaries have is that we are trying to build a decentralized economy in the coming years that everything will be decentralized and then when we are when we are trying to see where the computing environment is going where the systems on chip and all the neuromorphic computing uh, evolution is going, then we are seeing that all these efforts are towards building centralized uh, uh, systems. So there is a clash I see there, you know, that uh, between the blockchain uh, decentralized vision that a uh, lot of visionaries have and where the blockchain uh, uh, is uh, future is moving and where the future of the AI is moving. And uh, I see the both the future should be integrated because blockchain and AI needs to move together, you know, parallel. And that means that the efforts that we are trying to make in developing neuromorphic uh, computing chips, that they need to be such that we can uh, also work in, in integration with the blockchain, you know, vision that uh, the world has and where the blockchain is moving. So uh, that's why, you know, a lot of uh, confusion is there that, you know, I while there is a need for integration between blockchain and AI and uh, blockchain could be powering the AI needs for tomorrow as we try to, you know, as the efforts are more towards developing artificial superintelligence, and there is going to be huge energy requirement for that. There is a school of thought that, you know, it's the blockchain chips that would be perhaps, you know, powering the needs or providing the energy needs of the art, developing the artificial super intelligence. But I, I see that all these developments are happening in silos and uh, the there is no integrated vision between blockchain and AI and there needs to be because both the, both the developments needs to happen uh, in parallel simultaneously. But as far as talking about the design requirements for SpinMaker, what is the, at the center of uh, uh, trying to make the SpinMaker more mobile and more you know, efficient? Well, if... if um one wants to build useful networks on, on physically smaller Spinnaker systems, then of course we have to exploit higher integration density. And the current Spinnaker machine um, was fabricated on a fairly old technology. Uh, so there's certainly an order of magnitude improvement in density we can get um, just by using a more modern CMOS process technology. And, and that's what we're developing for the second generation machine. And that will allow us to put a network of the scale of an insect brain into a, a one watt chip that you could potentially um, mount in a small drone. Um, so, you know, an insect brain can control a flying insect. Um, maybe it can control a small drone if we can understand how to get the two things to interact. I think we're, we're, you, you talk about artificial superintelligence. I think 
that is a very long way off at the moment. We are, um, you know, we are not even close to being able to model the intelligence of, of a honeybee, um, let alone a mouse. Um, I also have this sort of philosophical feeling that we don't understand what we mean when we say superintelligence. Um, I mean, we think, uh, I'm aware of, of, of the theory of the singularity in intelligence, but I'm afraid I'm a bit skeptical about these theories. Um, I, I, I observe that human intelligence has multiple dimensions. Um, it's not a single parameter that can easily amplify itself. Um, there are many dimensions to human intelligence and, and um, it's a very complex concept and, 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 and I, I can't conceive what a higher intelligence than a human, what properties it would have. Um, but it feels to me it's, it's still sufficiently far off that I'm not going to meet one in my lifetime. Um, and I suspect many generations after me will be able to say the same. Um, and because this is a research area, of course, where research has to be focused. We, we, in academia, we operate research on, uh, on quite restricted budgets, and therefore um, we cannot solve all the world's problems at the same time. We have to focus on a particular challenge yes, and, and see if we can address that with the resources that are available to us. Uh, we do have to increasingly think about um, the wider ethical implications of the work we do. Um, so certainly you mentioned autonomous weapons earlier and um, there's, a, there's a very strong movement to consider the ethics and effectively try and achieve international agreements on uh, the regulation and control of autonomous weapons. Although I would note, of course, that there has been an autonomous weapon around for a very long time. Uh, it's also been banned, and that's the anti-personnel mine. Um, that's a device which, in a very simple way, decides when it's going to go off and who its target will be. Um, so this isn't a new problem. It's just that we have more sophisticated technologies um, available now to build uh, autonomous weapon systems. Um, but we also have... Uh, very major issues with diseases of the brain um, that the the large pharma companies have, have, have largely stopped investing in drug development for diseases of the brain because they don't have the functional models the way they develop drugs is to uh, is to understand the disease pathway and then design the drug to interrupt that pathway and in the cases of diseases of the brain we don't have the models that that tell us what the pathway should be um, so there are clearly risks in developing more intelligent machines, but there are also potentially huge benefits in, in increasing our understanding of the brain. And these have to be um, held in balance in some appropriate way. Yes, absolutely. Now, I hear you on that. There is, mental health is a huge challenge and so, is, so are many other diseases. So if we are able to, if this kind of uh, progress in uh, computing is a, going to enable understanding, it gives us an ability to understand these at a deeper level and helps us solve the problems, then we have to move forward. And at the same time, we are, we are not never going to stop progress and development. But we do need to be mind, mindful about where are the security risks going to to emerge more than ethics i'm more concerned about the security risk security risk for the human civilization that while we are making an effort to develop all this uh, uh, intelligence that could perhaps you know be 
much more uh, you know intelligent than human species then you know we there is a security risk emerging from that because uh, we will just be another species and you know they may i mean this debate is already ongoing that they may not find us uh, necessary you know they may find that you know uh, human uh, species are uh, irrelevant and uh, there are a lot of security risk emerges from that but there are i mean before we reach that point there are many other security risk emerging but let's talk about the spin maker that you know the it is certainly a novel chip and it has a huge potential uh, it's based on this arm processor which is designed to support large scale spiking neural network simulation so what allows spinnaker chips to be connected together to form scalable systems the uh, the scalability is based on the innovation in the communications infrastructure that we've built and, and uh, it's quite straightforward to describe um, in the brain the neurons are very highly connected so a, a typical cortical neuron connects to maybe 10,000 other neurons. Um, in the cerebellum in the brain, there are neurons that have quarter of a million inputs from other neurons. And, and uh, so the challenge is when the neuron spikes is to convey the information about that spike to thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of destinations. And conventional computer communication systems are not very good at this, they're designed are carrying large amounts of data from point A to point B very quickly. Um, but if you have to carry it from point A to point B, C, D, E, and F, and a thousand other points, um, then it becomes much less efficient. So in Spinnaker, the, the communication is fundamentally multicast. Um, the thing that makes this possible, of course, is that in the brain, the neurons that a particular neuron projects its spikes to are, are pretty constant. I mean, they they, uh, they they are static, or at most they change slowly, and therefore the routing of that spike is something uh, that can be pre-computed and held in hardware tables across the machine. So we exploit the fact that uh, this multicast route that a packet takes um, is is constant or at most slowly changing. Um, to, to implement a novel form of multicast communication that's very efficient. Each Spinnaker chip has, as at its heart, uh, a router, and these packets are passed from chip to chip, neighbor to neighbor, uh, and each chip um, performs a routing operation, but it's extremely lightweight. So the packet can pass through uh, five chips within a microsecond, and that means it can get across uh, the million core machine in a very small fraction of a millisecond, uh, which is the requirement for biological real time. So in, in the brain itself, long communication actually takes quite a long time. Signals take maybe 20 milliseconds to get from one side of your head to the other. Um, in Spinnaker, they can get, the machine is much bigger. It's in 10 data center style rack cabinets, but the signal can get from anywhere to anywhere uh, in a few tens of microseconds. Um, so effectively, we can abstract the topology of, 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 the, of the hardware um, and, and implement any neural network topology and maintain biological real time, um, irrespective of its physical disposition in the machine.
Yes, yes. No, no, that's very interesting. So this neural network mapping that happens onto the system, what methods do you use for that? And how do you ensure that when the chip is delivered for whatever functionality or what the purpose that uh, it needs to work on, that it will work as anticipated? The mapping is, is, is a software function. It's carried out by um, a large uh, stack of, of software that runs on a host. So, so there are 10 racks of Spinnaker chips, and then there's another rack of, of um, conventional um, cluster type computing resources. And the, the cluster computing resources compute um, the allocation of, of populations of neurons to process a cause and they compute the routing tables to make the necessary connections. So the user of Spinnaker can describe their network in, in a high-level language. We currently support PINE, which simply stands for Python Neural Networks, and it's become a widely used standard way of describing spiking networks, at least across Europe. Um, and our tools will take the PINE description and perform the allocation onto the machine and load the network into the machine. Uh, so it's 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 quite a, a complex software task to get the mapping right, um, and it's still it's a it's a research tool, so it isn't um, perfected, and and users have to be uh, reasonably patient. Um, if their first attempt to map their network, uh, the network doesn't run as expected, then they have to understand what's going on a little bit better and. Um, uh, we, we, we have uh, a help email alias um, so that they will say, I tried this network and it didn't work. And then we can give them advice as to what they should try next. Um, it, is a, it is a research environment, not a commercial production environment. Um, but the tools are quite powerful and, and uh, uh, quite a lot of very complex networks now run uh, without any difficulty. Yes, no, you're right that it is a research environment and there is still a lot that needs to be figured out. So what do you think still that still needs to be figured out, like in terms of technical, non-technical challenges for Spinnaker to be used or applied to develop, you know, many different systems that could emerge from this? There are many directions to the research at the moment. Um, one of the clear directions is scaling up to larger networks to find interesting uh, large networks that will um, test the full capabilities of the machine. Uh, but there's also at the low level, um, there's, there's research into what's the right way to model the neuron. Uh, the, the very lowest level, how can you make the, the differential equation solvers more accurate in the environment they're running in, um, through to interest amongst computational neuroscientists in slightly richer models of neurons. Um, so we, we tend to focus on the point neuron end where most of the spatial distribution of the neuron is, is ignored and all the functionality is considered to be at one point in space. But the, there's growing evidence that pyramidal cells have, have at least two separate functional units that communicate and, and that need a slightly more sophisticated uh, model uh, to capture their important properties. So we're exploring many directions. Um, Within the Human Brain Project, we have many collaborators who have a lot of knowledge uh, that's relevant to guiding how we develop these models. Um, so there's no shortage of interesting things to do. And there's rather more a shortage of people and resources to follow all the things we'd like to. Is, is it a global col uh, collaboration on this Human Brain Project? 
that everyone is working together, um, trying to solve the problems? Well, the Human Brain Project is, is an EU project. Um, so it's, it's funded uh, through the European Commission. Uh, so the funded partners are primarily um, in Europe, although, of course, there are partners in the EU science program who are outside the EU itself. Um, and there are other countries that participate uh, through their own funding schemes and, and are associated uh, to the Human Brain Project. Um, with Spinnaker, we have users outside the HBP. Um, we've been delivering boards um, to uh, you know, several places in the US have Spinnaker systems now. And uh, you can find Spinnaker anywhere from North America to New Zealand. Um, so there is a kind of global, small but global network of, of, of Spinnaker users. Um, and so that clearly goes outside the HBP. I mean, a lot of uh, the major science countries now have their own brain programs. Uh, so there's a big brain program in the US. Of course, the US also has the, the Allen Brain Institute, which is a very major center for research in brain science. But there are brain programs in Japan, China, Australia, um, uh, as well as the EU and, and, and North America. There's a Canadian one, I think, being announced recently. So uh, there's a sense that the time, the time is right for taking on the challenge of trying to understand more fundamentally how the brain works. Um, that, and I think part of the reason the time is right is because of the growth in the capacity of computers. We can now conceive computers uh, that are big enough and powerful enough to support whole human brain models. We don't, nobody's built one yet, but they're probably only about one generation of high performance computer away. Um, they're within sight and we can certainly build very complex models of major brain subsystems already. So, um, so I think there's a strong sense that the time is right to, to take this on and, and the benefits that will come will, will be both in the direction of medicine and in the direction of, of AI, I suspect. Yes, uh, certainly their potential is huge. So what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about the potential of Spinnaker and uh, where you would like to see uh, the applications emerging from across nations that they can use Spinnaker? Well, I think Spinnaker um, occupies a particular niche in, in the space of neuromorphic systems. Uh, there are uh, other neuromorphic platforms out there. At present, uh, Spinnaker offers um, the world's largest neuromorphic platform in the sense it's capable of supporting larger real-time biological neural network models than any other neuromorphic platform. Um, and and it, it offers advantages in terms of flexibility, but other platforms have advantages in other directions. And, and you know, the jury is still out as to which is the optimal approach to build systems to model the brain. Um, and so it's, it, it's valid that there are all these different approaches um, and, and maybe time will tell, or maybe it'll become clear that you know, Spinnaker is the best platform for this line of research and the Heidelberg Brain Scales machine is the best platform for that line and Lowy, he also has its um, its strengths in, a, in another direction. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's the nature of research that you can't predict the outcome um, when you start. Um, if you could, you wouldn't need to do the research. Yes, absolutely. Now I hear you on that because each of these 
chips that are being developed, the neuromorphing com computing chips, uh, each of them has its own strength and weaknesses. Each one runs on a different platform. Each one has different system requirements and uh, capabilities. So uh, we will have to see, you know, which one uh, emerges as to be the more suitable one for uh, further development on which, you know, more applications can develop. But again, you know, the, the development is not all going to center around one chip. It is going to be, you know, uh, many, many chips will be used for many different kind of uh, application development, different kind of uh, system development. So we just have to make sure that they all can speak to each other. They all can integrate and interoperable and uh, that the system requirements are designed and defined in such a way that uh, we don't create complex challenges integrating all of that. So each one each of these chips are going to be useful for solving the complex challenges facing humanity so thank you so much professor forber for participating in this roundup today we appreciate your thoughtful insight on spinnaker and the future of systems on a chip and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today so even if a single decision maker is able to understand the benefit or the potential of the com neuromorphic computing model that is emerging uh, after listening to this discussion, uh, this risk round of dialogue that we just had today, uh, this risk round of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah. Wonderful. So risk round of a global initiative launched by risk group is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology conversions, and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup webcast or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.